0: Another busy day, time for a break. Meet you in the Tea Room. The Tea Room is the podcast for GPs where we explore what GPs are talking about. From the Medical Republic, I'm Wendy John. Thanks for joining me. We all know that sexual assault and domestic violence against women are cultural problems in Australia. Add layers of intersectionality like being First Nations or a woman of colour, being transgender or having a disability, and your risk profile ramps Scarily high. And with problems this big, sometimes doctors may feel at a bit of a loss as to what can be done for those patients. But one psychiatrist in the Illawarra region, south of Sydney, is creating some answers. Dr. Karen Williams specializes in PTSD. After working extensively with Australian soldiers, Dr. Williams saw a big difference in how PTSD is characterized and treated if you're a soldier versus if you're just a mum up the road. So she's creating a hospital specifically for women who have experienced trauma, including domestic and sexual violence. This episode, we also, however, hear from Bex Spraddow. She lives with PTSD as the result of sexual trauma as a child. Bex Spraddow is not a patient of Dr. Williams, doesn't even know her, but Bex's diagnosis of PTSD changed her life. All thanks to a great GP who knew what to look for. But let's start with Dr. Karen Williams, who has created the PTSD Hospital for Women in the rural New South Wales. How she managed to get it up and running is a story in itself. Let's hear it. Welcome to the Tea Room, Dr Karen Williams. Glad to have you join us. Glad to have you join us. Thanks, Wendy. You're the medical superintendent for the first women's only hospital that's dedicated to treating the mental health consequences of trauma. What inspired you to do this?
1: Oh, it's it... Um... So a few things there. Um, As you mentioned before, um, I work with a lot of people from professions that are really commonly associated with PTSD and trauma, like the military and police, first responders, that kind of thing. So I've been doing that for a number of years, but I also have an outpatient population. So, you know, any person can come to that particular clinic. And in that clinic I was seeing so many women in fact almost every woman referred to me would have these stories of horrible traumas in their own lives things that you know many of us wouldn't really think are happening in the backyards of you know and in the homes of Australian women and what I was seeing is that there were these women with extensive trauma in their lives that had been you know that might, they might have experienced in childhood or, or in adulthood or were still experiencing trauma. And they had very similar symptoms and they were certainly traumatised, just like the patients that I had who I was treating for PTSD. And there was literally nothing that I could offer them in terms of treatment the way that I could for, for the Defence Force, for example. So, you know, in the hospital that I was working at, there's a, there's a dedicated unit to the Defence Force, we had group therapy for them, we had individual therapy, we had yoga, relaxation, mindfulness, we would help them get therapy dogs, we would support them in getting an exercise physiologist. Every aspect of their life was considered, it was a holistic approach to managing PTSD in the Defence Force, but then for women, what is there for them? There is there is literally nothing in our community, particularly nothing free or under Medicare, that women who are traumatised can access. Yet we know that women are experiencing traumatic events in their homes, don't we? With the statistics you know, that I mean, mm. we didn't mention, but you're talking sort of one in five women will experience domestic violence and one in four women will experience sexual abuse. So What is happening to all of those women that are being hurt in their own homes or hurt in their um, social settings? What's happening to them and the trauma that happens to them?
0: What is the common pathway for women who have PTSD from, say, for example, family violence or sexual violence?
1: Well, realistically, the most common pathway is that there isn't one, that there is nothing will happen for that woman that... None of her symptoms will actually get addressed in any real way because most women actually won't tell anybody what has happened to them. So they might say, they might see the GP, and most commonly that's who they would see, and they would talk about having trouble sleeping. Um, So sleeplessness is one of the big reasons a, a woman will see her GP, and that's a symptom of PTSD. They won't necessarily identify that as being PTSD, but they'll go into the GP saying that they can't sleep. The other thing that they'll experience are migraines, headaches that are unexplained and that they, and is often unresponsive to, to treatment. So, you know, chronic headaches that don't go away and can be really quite debilitating. They might see their GP for depression or or struggling to bond with their babies and and get diagnosed with things like postnatal depression. So it is very common that they would see a GP for a somatic complaint, so a bodily complaint, but very rarely do they, you know, next to never, turn up to the GP and say, hey, I think I've got PTSD from the things that happened to me in childhood. And I'd like to see that change. I'd like to see women start to be able to, to... to recognise trauma in themselves and be able to look for help.
0: This is a tricky one for GPs as well, who have to have a broad scope of what's possibly going on for someone. What approaches can a GP take to
1: better identify whether PTSD is a challenge in this space? Look, I think that's a, a really, really good question. And within the system as it is today designed today where there's so much focus on short consultations with simple you know one problem at a time type thing yeah it is incredibly hard to try and ask a GP to look for PTSD and manage PTSD in in a woman who was traumatized and you know because you don't want to do it wrong either you don't want to sort of open up a Pandora's box of asking women about their trauma and then actually not know what you're going to do with that information because you actually can do damage too if you don't do it properly. So one I think first has to happen is that people have to recognise, the GPs need to recognise that this is a problem, that they've got all these women coming in. So I think it's something like one in every five women that, in, that go to a GP will have domestic violence happening for them at that time. So recognising that it's a problem and then they have to think about how they as a professional, professional group are going to respond to this in a way that is equitable because at the moment it tends to be female GPs that will be more likely to ask these questions and have, and, the longer and have the longer consultations and then they will be the ones who are going to be financially worse off because of it. So there's actually a financial disincentive for a GP to ask these things because there's not, you know, the remuneration just doesn't exist for, you know, responding to someone with with this kind of thing, because you're going to spend a lot of time with a woman like this. You need to spend, you know, at least an hour really to do it properly. And then, you know, you'll usually hear that they've got issues with money. They'll probably have very little access to money, especially if they're in current domestic violence situations where they've got financial control, so they may not be able to pay for a longer consultation. And then you're going to feel guilty to to take money of someone who doesn't have it. But then it also, as you say, it opens a Pandora's box.
2: That That's
0: right. If going into this conversation is causing additional harm or additional trauma, and then there's no treatment option, there's no clear pathway at the end. Mm. It's
1: it's a it's a call that. A GP would have to make that is a very very difficult one. That's right I mean I've had patients say to me well I did sort of mention it to my GP and they didn't really do anything about it so I didn't think it was that important. What can a GP do? I mean, I do think that, you know, doctors should all consider themselves as advocates for, you know, the general population. And as you see, you know, with COVID, lots of doctors standing up saying we need to be doing more to respond to COVID. We need to start speaking out on this stuff and say, how do we as a profession do actually respond to this better? Because you are seeing these women anyway. They are coming to you over and over again with things like depression, as I said, or or sleeplessness. And instead of having multiple appointments with them and then trying for antidepressants and, you know, benzos to help them sleep, I actually think, well, you know, wouldn't it be better if we had a longer appointment time and, and that we advocated for that to be remunerated properly and we get the training in how to manage this a little bit more effectively. It's all about that developing that safe environment where that person can start talking about what's happening for them at home. So, you know, just that first bit of establishing trust is is a really is a really big bit. It's not small. It takes a long time and they need to see that, you know, you're someone who, who understands, um, you know, what they're saying. You're not going to judge them on their decisions and that they're not going to feel like they ca- can't come back and see you if they haven't made that decision to leave. So it's about being really careful about being really strong about the fact that the woman needs to leave but rather saying you know look it will be really hard for you to leave and you may not be able to do it for a while So at least come back and talk to me about it you know I, I want to i want to talk to you again even if it's just that you're coming to see me so that i can start documenting things for you because it will be useful for you in in you know if you do decide to leave even if it's in 5 years time i can create a paper trail that we've been talking about it and you know that will be useful for you in the in the legal sense If a GP is able to
0: ascertain that a patient probably has PTSD,
1: is it then a referral to a psychiatrist like yourself? It doesn't always have to be a psychiatrist. Sometimes a person can can have their PTSD really well managed by a good psychologist and there are even some fantastic social workers that have really good trauma training as well. So it is about finding out who in your community do do trauma informed work and do have an understanding of PTSD in women, because I don't think medication is really the most important thing. I mean, definitely for someone who's got a sleep problem, you do want to use medication for them, because you just can't treat somebody for PTSD if they're not sleeping. So somebody who's sort of saying that they're getting one or two hours of sleep a night and have only been getting that for the last 5 or 6 years for example they're just not going to operate in a way that's best for them to ever navigate escaping the bad situation because they're so sleep deprived asking them to think about you know how to escape a really tricky dangerous situation is really quite unfair so I do you think sleeping medication is important but again I do actually think more knowledge needs to be sort of disseminated about that because you do get a lot of doctors really over-sedating these women. And the last thing you want to do for someone who's experiencing PTSD is make them sedated during the day. So a lot of GPs will give people, oh, just have a little bit of Valium, you know, when you're feeling panicked. and Or oh, if you're feeling really anxious, have a little bit of, you know, five milligrams of, of Valium. that that's actually really dangerous and really bad for someone who who has PTSD. Someone who's got PTSD is always navigating in their mind an escape route. How do I get out of this dangerous situation? So that might be whether they're in a dangerous situation or not. They might have left the DV situation, but their brain is still sort of making them feel like they are in danger. So if they're sedated, what their body is being told is this person's in danger, but they can't even run away because they're so spaced out. So what actually happens to someone who's medicated or sedated during the day is that their anxiety gets worse. Because they can't escape from the situation. So it's a huge mistake to sedate women who are traumatised and I see it all of the time. And one of the biggest things I do is get women off all of their sedating medications during the day And a sedating medication at night is okay as long as they don't feel sedated the next day. So, you know, the dose should only be just enough to get them to sleep through the night. But then if they say, oh, I'm still tired at 11, 12 o'clock the next day, I say, okay, that dose is too high, we've got to drop it back.
0: What about women who are self-harming? The pathway for them would be admission into a psych ward?
1: Yeah, look, I mean, self-harming, that and is another big issue because you see women who do cut themselves or you know do any other form of self-harming often go into the emergency department and get turned away you know most GPs will talk about the fact that they send their patients into the emergency department or send them to community mental health and the women are sent away because women who self-harm are often believed to have a a disorder um, described as borderline personality disorder and the narrative around that is we can't help you in the emergency department we can't help you in the psychiatric unit so go away essentially and so the most that tends to happen for someone who might have cut themselves is that they would get sutured up in the ed and then told to follow up with their gp occasionally if that woman is saying i am going to kill myself and i have a plan and they give a convincing argument that they really are at risk to hurting themselves and i'm talking kill themselves not just hurt themselves in as in injure themselves then the only option at that point is to be admitted to the mental health unit which is a locked unit and every mental health unit in the public system are they're all mixed units so you'd be mixed you'd be in a locked unit both men and wi- and women and a lot of them are very disturbed people. So you'd have people who might be acutely intoxicated or acutely psychotic. You could have loud, scary, big men, and they often have no locks on the doors for safety reasons. And then you're asking these women who are scared and vulnerable to fall asleep in a locked unit where they can hear people screaming and the staff are all wearing security, like, when I worked in one of them, um, and, and I did that for a number of years, is we all get to wear alarm systems so that if we get knocked down by a patient, the alarm sounds. So as soon as I'm horizontal on, a, on an acute ward, the alarm sounds so that all the staff get to wear that but the patients don't. So we all acknowledge that it's a bit scary. But um, what about the women that are there that are, are going to be vulnerable and afraid and are already vulnerable from, you know, to being triggered by from their past experiences, but then putting them on a locked unit where they can't actually leave, they can't run away from a unit like that. What do you think happens to their anxiety? Their anxiety is going to increase, isn't it, because they can't fight or flight. So they've designed these very unhelpful wards and then said, oh, women get worse in these situations. Oh, they don't do well in these situations. Let's not admit them. And that's something that
0: extends to uh, personality disorder as well as that women who are assigned a personality disorder uh, classification are then said, well, treatment's not going to be helpful for you because we know that on woods women
1: don't get better. That's exactly right. So there's guidelines written on this that people who have got chronic feelings of suicidality and, and their women will tend to have a borderline personality disorder and that the guidelines will say admissions don't help them. And, yeah, they don't. The the admissions are not going to help if you don't treat them and all you do is lock them up in a ward with people who resemble their perpetrators. You know, of course it's not going to work. They could frame it as in we haven't designed our acute inpatient wards to cater for women. We've designed them to cater for acutely psychotic men. Now this is what's exciting with the Ramsey Clinic. Tell us about it.
0: You're turning that design on its head.
1: Well yeah, I mean, as I said before, you can't put traumatized women in with with men particularly if their main trigger has been a male. And it is the most the person most likely to traumatize a woman is an intimate partner. So we've got to recognize this is not about being sexist or anything like that. This is about recognizing that that this is a fact that a, a, the male per- body, the male person, is the biggest trigger. And you can't expect them to get better on mixed units. It just doesn't work. So tell us about the Ramsey Clinic in Therule. So it is, it is um, a female only unit. And it is designed to get to the bottom of what causes that the mental distress. So rather than saying, you know, these women all have mental illnesses. Let's address the underlying condition the same way that we look at trauma in in the defense person, personnel. Like we, we look at them and say you know you've come back from from war, you've come back from deployment and you are now wanting to kill yourself or you are now suicidal. So we recognize that you've, you've gone through all of the, these terrible experiences whilst you're away, you've come back a different person and we want to help you get back your old self. We don't say you've got you're mentally ill. We say you, you know you, you've you've been traumatised. You've got PTSD. Let's work with that. So it's a similar sort of model. It's recognising that the vast majority of women with mental health diagnoses are traumatised, and we we want to address the underlying causes first. So very similar things to what we had at the unit for defence personnel. We have we have the yoga and mindfulness and relaxation and group therapy and individual therapy we've even got a pool and it's beautiful swimming pool we've got an art room and well it, it's beautiful every every woman has her own bedroom and her and her own bathroom and it's really what we're trying to do is set a standard for what the care for traumatized women should be and so this is as you said Ramsey so it's privately funded and it's going to be only at this stage, are only available to people who have got private health insurance. But what we hope is that we will develop a lot of research from from this and a lot of data to say that this is a much better way to do it and we're going to get better outcomes. How did you get it up and running? I'm sort of face-to-face with these glaring inequity in, in the distribution of health services. So I'm offering this gold standard treatment to my Defence Force patients and then I'm offering literally nothing to to traumatise women and I just didn't think that it was fair. And and so I did spend years sort of advocating going to a variety of ministers. I went to, you know, the Attorney General, Minister for Domestic Violence, to the Minister for Health, the Minister for Mental Health, um, went to the Minister for Women and eventually, ended um, you know, went to, to the Prime Minister's office as well and have been advocating and continue to advocate that we have this available to everybody. That's in the, the former federal government? Yes, that's right. That's right. But how about state? You approached people in state government as yeah, well? Yeah, Yes, so the, we went to the Minister for Health, went to Brad Hazard and Bonnie Taylor as well. So we didn't have any luck with that. And so I went to... Ramsey got an appointment with their CEO and and I basically what I've just done to you is just ranted (laughs) (laughs) and they actually asked the question how can Ramsey help you and I said well could I have a ward would I be able to have one ward where I can have my female patients on that ward and I'll treat them on that ward. So in the Um, meeting
0: you're talking to the CEO and she turns around and says well how can we help you?
1: Yeah. And I'm saying to her, well, I'd like a ward. Could you give me a ward that I could maybe keep my women on and I can treat them for PTSD in that ward in, you know, in a safe environment. And, and she, she said, well, how about I give you a hospital instead? <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah, it was pretty good. I, I, I did actually burst into tears. I was, oh, how cruel! Yeah. I was that shocked. I couldn't quite believe it. And she she's, she said, "Have you heard of the rule?" I'm like, yes, I have. It's beautiful. There was a rehab unit there, and about forty to fifty beds. And they were about to sell it, and she she immediately rang someone high up in Ramsey and said, "Let's put a hold on that. We're not going to sell it. We're going to turn it into a hospital for women." And, and when do you open? So in the next couple of weeks, actually, um, we'll be opening up. Um, Amazing. Yeah, it's just, it's just we're literally weeks away so you must be
0: incredibly busy what are your biggest needs right now getting that to open day i'd like to
1: have a public private partnership where there are some beds available to women without private health insurance and and i'll be fighting for that you know, you know until it happens we still need staff unfortunately um so there is a a nationwide shortage of nurses and doctors and definitely psychiatrists okay so every Every GP who is listening,
0: if you've got a friend who is a a psych or a nurse, and they want a the rural is a beautiful. It's a it's a seaside town, isn't it? About an hour, hour and a half south of Sydney. You want to? Oh, it's not even that far. A tree change, sea change, and live in the What are the different options for doctors and to work at the clinic? Would they need to live in the or could they do some sort of a rostered system?
1: They can do a rostered system, yeah. So the, the, the trauma program is three weeks long. So if a psychiatrist uh, would like to, say, maybe be on three for a three-week block and take patients on for a three-week block and then have a break and then come back in and do another three-week three week block, that would work.
0: So the Ramsey Clinic, the rule, it's probably Australia's first, maybe a world first in this kind of an approach.
1: For specifically for women who have experienced trauma, I'm not aware of anywhere else that that runs anything similar to this at all. And I have been contacted by a number of psychiatric organisations overseas. So, in you know the um, equivalent colleges that we have, you know College of Psychiatrists, the, I've been contacted by people in in the UK from from their college saying how did you get that that up and running that's amazing and wanting to sort of talk about how they can develop them in their own country so definitely think it's a unique way and certainly our program was was designed as a unique one there's nothing like it in the Australian system and nothing like it anywhere else either. Is there anything else that you'd like to say before we wrap up? I think I'd like to say that this is such a big topic and it's such, there's so much to learn and understand about treating trauma properly. So you should be thinking with every woman that comes in that there may be trauma and if you're confused about the person's symptoms, start to think about trauma and, and try to learn a bit more about what trauma looks like and say things like, you know, sometimes people have experienced bad stuff. In their childhood or experiencing bad stuff now and that can impact the way they feel you know do you think that could be happening for you and you know i don't expect you to open up and tell me all this stuff but could that be happening and um, maybe it would be good for you to see a psychologist or speak to someone about that just sort of letting it marinate in in your mind that 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 could be going on the problem
0: is though if there's no clear pathway for treatment that is safe and not going to cause extra trauma for a woman, then it's going as you say, it's opening a Pandora's box.
1: Yeah, so I mean that's why every person would have to, as an individual, work out where your women's health centres, um, sexual assault services, being aware of of who does counselling for trauma and who doesn't. If you do open it up and and you actually don't have any idea, the important thing is to say look, I don't know where where you can get help, but this is something that's really important and we need to find out where we can get some help for you. So rather than sort of saying, oh, okay, well, you know, you should just leave and then and, and drop it, or you should go to the police with that, you, you actually should acknowledge your limitations of, of your knowledge and say, make sure that the patient doesn't walk away thinking that you don't think it's that big of a deal, because if you did, you would have done more with that information so even if that's another take-home message. Now there
0: is some good news also where you've received some funding recently for a trauma recovery centre can you just briefly tell us about that because that's a huge win for the advocacy work that you've been doing.
1: Yeah look it's a massive win actually because so as I was saying to you I want trauma therapy to be available to all women and I want it to be publicly available and so that was actually what we were advocating for when I said we've been going to all these different politicians. The federal government did give us $25 million, so $5 million over five years to establish a a trauma recovery centre. And again, with similar sort of principles as, as I was speaking about, but it's not inpatient, it would be outpatient. And it's a Sort of one stop shop where a woman could go in into an identifiable building in the community and say that's the place I go if I've been traumatised, that's the place I go if I've had family violence or sexual violence. And when I go in there, I can see a psychologist, I can see a GP, I can see a mental health professional of some sort, and I can see a lawyer. So it's getting all of your services in the one, you know, a one stop shop wrap around service where you get all of the needs met in a safe environment so that outpatient facility what's the time frame for that so we have the the money to build the building but not the money to to actually purchase land where we can put the building on so we're still in negotiations about about actually finding a place for it it will be in illawarra as well and you know hope we're hoping to sort of create a bit of a trauma hub here where we're going to get lots of research out of here and then sort of that should be disseminated throughout the rest of Australia. But I couldn't, I couldn't tell you. I mean, we're looking for you know at least a year before that would be built.
0: Excellent news. So we've got a recruitment drive going on here. We've got some research that's happening. Researchers also might want to be contacting you to be interested uh, to find out more. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, would would love anyone interested in doing research to give me some a, a call would be
0: good that's great and we'll put your contact details in the show notes for this podcast Dr Karen Williams medical superintendent of the new Ramsey clinic in Thurral thank you so much for joining us in the tea room
1: great thank you Wendy that was Dr Karen
0: Williams medical superintendent of the new Ramsey clinic Thurral also joining us today is Beck Spraddell. Now, we don't normally have patients on the Tea Room, but if we can't make an exception for this topic, we're kind of missing the point. But the main reason I've invited Beck to join us is because her journey is illuminating and it offers some key insights into the role of the GP in diagnosing PTSD in women who have experienced sexual assault. Beck Spraddell, thank you so much for joining us in the Tea Room today. Thanks for having me, Wendy. Beck, what would you like to say about the trauma that led to PTSD?
2: Um, I guess just keeping it brief. uh, When I was an adolescent, I was sexually abused and um, it was over a period of time. The effects of the abuse were compounded by the lies that were told to me to cover it up um, and, and they were lies that were connected to my spirituality and faith, so it had quite the impact on me.
0: What was your journey in the health system from that time?
2: So I developed eating disorders um, and they were diagnosed when I was 21 by a nutritionalist. I also was treated for depression and other mental health issues along the way. I had a suicide attempt when I was about 23, 24. My timelines are fuzzy around that time in my life. Um, I also used drugs and alcohol. I saw a variety of health professionals, including GPs, psychologists, psychiatrists, counsellors, dietitians, naturopaths. I tried a lot of different avenues to get help. And I had periods of chronic pain, chronic illness, mental unwellness, disordered eating, binging, starving, restricting, lots of ups and downs. That's a lot. Yeah. And I guess I started to feel a little bit like a hypochondriac because nothing could be, no one could find actually what was wrong. And, you know, I I just felt like I couldn't, no one could put their finger on what was wrong. So it must be in my head.
0: And was that something that GPs and other allied health professionals and other practitioners would indicate when they were speaking with you? Or is it something that you just started to think yourself?
2: I guess I felt it was implied. You know, I'd come in with chronic pain and health professionals would suggest to me that you know I needed to deal with my stress I needed to meditate um, but I had specific pain and the only explanation that I could think of of why they would be saying that was because it was in my head and it wasn't real.
0: Mm. Did anyone at any stage seek to have a conversation with you about whether you had experienced trauma in your life
2: um look a number of these mental health professionals were aware of the trauma that I had experienced including you know psychologists psychiatrists GPs um I a number of times when I would present with mental unwellness it would be because I was triggered and I would be letting them know what I had lived through but nobody made a connection nobody gave it that title until I was much older
0: So when were you finally diagnosed with PTSD?
2: So I had a period of mental unwellness in early 2020. Um, So, yeah, three years ago when I was 40, the GP I went to see, listened to my story and my history and what I was going through at the time and immediately diagnosed me with PTSD, said that he believed that I had PTSD, and he then referred me to see other mental health professionals. So,
0: how did it make you feel about yourself, when you finally got that PTSD diagnosis?
2: I guess I felt like I'm strong enough. Um, you know, I felt I felt like more of a survivor than I did a hypochondriac. I realized right. that actually what I've been through and the way that I'm functioning, um, it's it's actually impressive. And I'm allowed to feel like I'm an impressive person. I'm not a failure.
0: So you felt like a failure before, whereas this diagnosis enabled you to get that out of way of thinking
2: yeah absolutely because I was always you know needing to take time off because I was sick and it was unexplained and I just felt like I was failing as a human and now that I understand why I need time off when I need time off I understand that actually that's a really reasonable thing for me and it's it's not a shortcoming it's just part of who I am and what I live with
0: tell us about the GP who did the diagnosis what was different about them
2: I think, I think he just sat and listened and um, he wasn't in a hurry to get me out the door and I, I don't know how he knew to ask the right questions. I don't know. He just seemed very intuitive and pieced the pieces together. Perhaps he was looking for those signs. Perhaps he had enough understanding to know what to look for and, um, Yeah, I'm very thankful that I went to see him. He wasn't even a regular GP. He was just at a medical centre, but he really took the time with me and it it really made a massive difference in my life. Oh, How did it make a difference? Well, I guess just um, living with trauma, if you're triggered and your response to that trigger is shame and burying it, you're not getting the help you need. And so, whatever's happening around being triggered, that's just going to um, compound and get worse. And the outcome of that is not going to be health for you. But um, you know, now when I'm triggered and I just immediately stop and I take time for myself, I heal so much faster. I get back to being able to operate, um, you, you know, in some sort of normality. Not that I like that word. Faster. Um, I just am able to. I'm able to rise above that trauma without delving into shame and and without, you know, feeling the weight of the shame that comes with that.
0: If you had been diagnosed uh, with PTSD once you'd moved away from your family, what difference would have it made in your 20s, for example?
2: I guess probably the biggest difference it would have made is I've always been a curious person, so I would have researched it and I would have realised that the chronic pain that I live with Um, isn't in my head that it is trauma showing up in my body and um, that that was a massive relief for me understanding that and you know also then not worrying about it being something more severe um, you know not trying to hide it not trying to work past it but actually just allowing it to be It, it makes a big difference because when you're trying to always push through and work hard to overcome that pain it doesn't help um, you know, and it can make the pain more intense and it's just just being able to be okay with having that pain and know that it wasn't in my head and it, there was a reason for it would have made a big difference.
0: Why do we so easily identify soldiers as having PTSD and not women who have experienced sexual assault or domestic violence?
2: I think because for a long time PTSD was just really pigeonholed as um a singular traumatic event
0: Mm.
2: whereas we know more about it now and chronic trauma can still result in ptsd whereas and also i don't think that they i don't think that they necessarily associated abuse with trauma in that same sense Mm. Whereas now we understand it more and do. And as a society, we're willing to look at abuse now. Whereas when we first started talking about PTSD and soldiers, we weren't really ready to look at abuse Mm. or own up to what was happening in the world around us.
0: Where are you at now with treatment?
2: So now I have a really great GP locally. I've moved away from where I got my diagnosis. So I have a new GP, but she's fantastic. And I have a psychologist that I see regularly and I have a dietitian that I work with regularly. And I I think that those people as health professionals will always be part of my journey. Mm. Uh, It's important for me to be able to connect with people that can keep me on track and, and, you know, support me in my wellness
0: it sounds expensive though
2: <laughs> it can be and I don't think that the system is set up to help us pay for that that's probably a whole nother story <laughs>
0: <laughs> give us a quick rundown in a nutshell
2: <laughs> um I guess well recently I, I I was connected with a dietitian and it's like cool, just through my GP so I was able to access those 20 sessions through the eating disorder plan and and then I started to get well when I went back to the GP and re-sat the test once my 12 months were up, I no longer qualified for any sessions. And I think this is a massive flaw in the system because I am well, because I have access to those supports. Those supports help to keep me well. And going from that many supports to no supports is a recipe for disaster. Most people who live with eating disorders live with them for life and you can have them under control for six months, 12 months. I've had my eating disorder under control previously for five years and then relapsed. So just going from having so much support to, wow, you're doing well because of the supports you have and then having all those supports taken away, it just doesn't seem to be a very logical system. I think there should be an option where support can step down.
0: Mm. Is there anything else you'd like to say about PTSD and your journey.
2: I guess just that, you know, it's it is a real thing. It's not a made up thing. If you are diagnosing a patient with it, head them in the direction of some resources where they can understand just how much that might be impacting their life and what things that it might account for and how to get, you know, that ongoing support that you need. The connection between PTSD and so many other things. If you have PTSD, you're so much more likely to have fibromyalgia mm. and just understanding like all of those connections would enable you then as a doctor to be able to look out for it you know mm. so if your PTSD patient is coming in and they're exhausted all the time and they're dizzy and they seem to have this flu-like thing that just never goes away well that's probably fibromyalgia because they have PTSD and so you know it's not such a leap to think whereas fibromyalgia is something that is um, really difficult to diagnose yes because it doesn't have a straightforward diagnosis so a lot of people living with fibromyalgia aren't diagnosed for it
0: do you have any words for the GP who gave you that diagnosis
2: I am just so very grateful you know that you took the time and you listened and you were able to really see what was going on and point me in the direction of some light
0: Beck, thank you so much for joining us in the Tea Room today. Thanks for sharing the intimate parts of your journey. We really appreciate you giving us insights into what PTSD has meant for you and what the journey has been like. So thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: That was Beck Prado. I'm Wendy John. Thanks for joining me in the Tea Room. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can search for us on your favourite podcast player and subscribe. Leave us a review if you like. If you have any news tips or want to chat, you can email me at wendy@medicalrepublic.com.au. At the Tea Room is a production from the journalists at the Medical Republic. Visit us at medicalrepublic.com.au to keep up to date with all the latest news and views in general practice. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter. We love to keep you informed. Thanks for tuning in.